Hello everyone and welcome to the third week of um, cybersecurity uh, seminar. Uh, today I'm uh, very excited to uh, introduce Salman uh, Sanya. Um, Salman is a computer science uh, graduate student um, here at Purdue University. He um, is uh, actively working on uh, cybersecurity tools, and um, he presents his research, leads uh, workshops and delivers keynote talks at uh, cybersecurity conferences around the world, including uh, talks in venues like DEF CON and Black Hat USA. Um, Solomon, please take it, take it. All right, um, thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for having me, especially uh, letting me to be able to deliver a talk. Hopefully it goes well. Um, I'll do my best to also monitor the chat in case there are any questions, please chat away and I'll answer them as best as possible. Okay, so here are some things on what to expect in our conversation today. We'll do a little bit of background. Um, we'll have a quick research motivation. We'll talk about the revolutions in malware affair, this concept that we use to understand how malware has evolved. And then we'll talk about how can we better secure our computer systems? Like, what does this security mean for us in the future? And then we'll finish with some recommendations. Um, I do have a disclaimer. You know, the views that we present in this presentation, they're that of myself. You know, my, they're me. Um, they don't represent the, the views of the United States Department of Defense or the U.S. Air Force. Uh, perfect. So um, who am I? Just, just real quick, um, from the, the background that you heard, um, I'm blessed to be a PhD student here. Um, I've had previous positions um, in industry. Uh, this is actually my yeah, 15th year since graduating with my undergrad, and I worked um, in, the, in industry with uh, cybersecurity in a very large organization um, for many years, including being the director of cyber operations training, um, as well as a computer science um, professor at the uh, United States Air Force Academy. And so it was really good to do research and also to be able to teach and then um, to now come here and work at Purdue. It's, it's been an honor. I'm really happy to be here. Um, then other positions I've done, I've also done software reverse engineering. I also teach that every year um, in Rome, New York and uh, software development. Uh, yep. Yeah, and then, you know, some education down there at the bottom. I like to learn things. All right, so uh, real quick, research motivation. This is kind of the central thesis for this conversation. And I always, whenever I talk about cybersecurity, um, I always start with malware attacks. They continue to increase in sophistication and prevalence. Um, I'm just using one simple metric, the CVEs, your common vulnerabilities and exposure, um, just as a zoomed out way of understanding since the malware or ex exposures have been starting to be cataloged, I'm from like 1999, a little bit earlier than that, until here, I, I stopped this analysis in 2021. You can see that there's always been like a general climb in reporting uh, of malware. So it's, it's always increased and it's always going to continue um, to increase. So looking at the evolution of malware, I kind of want to, um, I introduced this at the beginning um, of our introduction, um, but um, I, I want to talk about this concept called a revolution in military affairs to understand like how has malware changed and evolved over time. So I'm starting with revolution military affair. Um, the definition, one definition of this is a fundamental change in the character and conduct of armed conflict. And so for me, I view like malware, uh, reverse engineering malware doing incident response. We're doing cyber warfare. We are at, we're, we're constantly at battle and at war with malware authors who are writing malicious software in order to harm our enterprise or harm the organization that we care about. And so here, like how do we understand like what fundamental changes have occurred? And that's why I'm using this, this definition. So with an, an army, uh, these fundamental changes, it leads to an irrecoverable change in the conduct of warfare or an irrecoverable change in the way that we do what we used to be doing such that once we have this unique change, we forever use what we've learned or use something that's changed in the past and then this becomes kind of like our, our way of life or it becomes our modus operandi moving forward. Now I have some examples real quick to kind of explain or you know to pictographically represent um, a few RMAs in the past. So for one, kind of start with like the gunpowder, the advent of gunpowder, I believe by the Chinese hundreds of years ago. And so before we were using gunpowder, 
like warfare was conducted with stones and rocks and and metal you know if, if i can uh, craft a sword or any type of weapon that I can use to conduct battle. This is kind of how both sides used to fight each other. And yes, we have large catapults, etc. But but still, um, we, we did not have any mechanized like gun or weapon that we can call a gun until the gunpowder came. However, once we understood how to use and weaponize gunpowder, then we forever use gunpowder or some sort of munition and explosion to do many things in life, you know, including um, or including uh, missiles, bombs, etc., they're all going to stem from the advent of the gunpowder. Other armies can be included as like the hot air balloon, in which it gave an adversary the high ground. And generally, the person who has the high ground in a battlefield has the advantage to see where the enemy is advancing, as well as how to better combat, you know, the, the adversary, whoever we're going against. Other revolutions in military affair, we can consider the creation of the airplane and flights, you know, mechanized flight as a revolution in which our life has forever irrecoverably been changed since we had the, the aircraft. We can go anywhere in the world now because of like um, mechanized flight, et cetera. Um, the steam engine, like locomotive, being able to transport large, heavy things and long distances, you know, many of like our life has changed because of these. Another thing to talk about, as we discuss even with uh, munitions, uh, would also be the rifling for, for being able to fire uh, munitions. So before the creation of the rifling, being able to spiral an object like in a circular pattern. So before that, if I have a, a weapon, um, I'll even say like a musket or you know a, a precursor of our modern day gun. If I were to fire that, I put a metal object inside, I load it with gunpowder, and now I fire it at an adversary. I can hit an adversary with much greater force than I can use with my own, you know, my own might, but I was still highly inaccurate. And that's because in the muzzle that you have, when you put a, a weapon inside, it actually bounces around in the muzzle before it's ejected, and now it's, it's in space, you know, going to hit a target. So even if I went to fire this way, because of how that muzzle or the, the weapon was bouncing, I can fire this way and my you know, munition would go this way or go that way, highly, highly inaccurate until we created the rifle. So with that, I can now shoot a weapon and it will fire straight. So we gain accuracy as well as range with the rifling. And any munition that we fire since the creation of the rifle, it's always going to have some sort of rifling embedded inside. You know, it changed the character of how we did warfare. Other things to include, it would be like the integrated circuits, the computer, being able to launch um, systems from, from space. So this also allows us to have worldwide communication like GPS. You know, this has been a change like before we were using maps. You know, now we will always have some sort of GPS that we depend on um, at this time. And then even our internet, you know, these things can be considered as revolutions and how our, our lives have forever changed to the point that we always use these revolutions to continue forward. So with that concept in mind, I do want to talk about revolutions in malware and how it's evolved in order for us to understand these significant changes. And we can talk about how do we better secure our systems in the future. So I'm going to categorize the malware that we discussed kind of in four main bins. One would you know, like your overarching is cyber warfare. It's kind of like the foundation of um, malware that we're going to talk about and any type of, of use of you know malware or attacks across cyberspace. We're just going to lump those in as cyber war. Ransomware has been a significant change in the like the use of malware that's propagated across the world onto our our systems. Internet of Things also a concept to consider when we discuss um, malware and its its evolution. And then finally, critical vulnerabilities, which systems have been compromised by them. So with that in mind, I would now like to go back to our like our count of significant malware events across time. And then let's see how those uh, significant revolutions have occurred. And I'm going to go kind of quickly just with the interest of time because you know, I, I used to teach. So, you know, you give me time, I'm going to talk and then I'll ask for more time, um, but I'll, I'll be as fast as possible. So one thing to start with, if we look at, you know, the, the I love you worm. So what we learned from like 
having this I love you warm. Yeah, there were a few others before then, and even we can even go back into like the 1980s, but I want, I want to start here at 2000. So the I love you warm was it was able, it was kind of like one of our first uses of internet worms and technology and sending like malicious content across many different systems, and it had a worldwide impact. This one was, I believe, our first multi-billion dollar uh, event due to a malware that was sent um, from one machine and attacked you know millions and millions of machines. Um, it's recorded that the I Love You Worm had a um, I, I think the FBI or so they recorded that this had a 5.5 billion dollar tag in damages because of this worm and how it was able to spread. Since then, we learned malware authors, malware writers, we've learned that. Uh, I can now send, instead of just trying to attack a single system, I can find vulnerabilities and have my malware worm itself across the internet. Moving over to 2005, we have the Sony rootkit. So Sony actually installed, it was like our um, like copyright protection um, media on its machines in order for us to um, verify we're only listening and sending like copyright um, media, media that we purchased and owned, um, but the way that they were able to embed their software on their machines, malware authors alike, we learned, aha, there's this even better concept called rootkits. And so if in only, like instead of only writing my software to run at user level, I can figure out how to borrow to have root level privileges and then to be able to run um, multiple software toolkits um, with root level root level privileges. Now, if we look at the archivist um, malware, so the archivist malware, this kind of was uh, one of our first uses of ransomware that now had asymmetric encryption. Before this archivist uh, was released and we learned about it, when ransomware was uh, like sent from one machine to many other machines, yes, ransomware was not new by 2005, but usually there was a symmetric key that was used to encrypt and decrypt the machines. So if one person paid the ransom, or if we reverse engineer and figured out, like this is the key used to lock and to unlock the machine, I can now send that key to everybody else. And now we can kind of like mitigate the causes or the impacts of ransomware up to this time. But Archivist using RSA, this is now an asymmetric encryption, which made it very difficult to crack unless we actually had like some information on how it was used to secure or to encrypt um, details on the machine to begin with. The Zeus botnet. So when we look at Zeus, Zeus, like it was very, very nice as a well widespread toolkit that many people can take and then adapt and use for their own means. But something else that Zeus uh, kind of like changed our warfare was that it specifically focused on banking Trojans or excuse me, on um, exploiting banking websites as well as key loggers. So with the key logger, I can see where you're accessing the internet. I see what you're typing in your username, your password, especially to various websites. And now we can exchange, like how do we exploit and gain like greater money from looking at what the users are doing? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna move a, a little a little faster. Um, so in 2007, so we had a lovely attack. I mean, lovely to learn from now, but at the time it was not for Estonia in which we, we, we all know, or many people have heard of the Estonia, like the distributed denial of service in which cyber machines were used to cause like millions and millions of dollars to an entire country. So this is one of our first weaponization of cyber impacting a nation state as Estonia. It was, it was very big, but from then, um, like a lot of organizations really started to consider, uh, well, what does it really mean to be attacked with a, a distributed denial of service? And then how do we mitigate this? How do we have redundancies in order to keep from um, going down as, as terribly as Estonia was attacked by some disgruntled individuals. In 2008, so this is configure. So 2008, that was like the, the bane of my existence because this is after I graduated with my undergrad and I'm working in industry. Configure was one of the biggest things that we had to respond to every single day, 24 seven with machines being infected with this type of worm that we don't really know what it was going to do or what it was about. But the significant thing that we learned from Configure, although it wasn't the first to implement this, but it was one of the first widespread uses of DGA. So DGA stands for Domain Generating Algorithm, in which if a malware or worm wants to establish command and control, 
or at least to be able to send either exfiltrate or infiltrate information to a system, you would um, like reversing the malware, you would generally have an idea on how to extract all of the domains that it, this malware might be able to communicate with. So that means if I can understand all, like a huge list of domains that a malware is going to communicate with, then I can now set rules in place. I can block access to these websites. I can also um, like set up um, like monitors or alerts such that if I see any machine across our enterprise reaching out to these known malicious domains, then aha, I, have an, I have a potential infection. Now let me go after this machine. But with Configure, with a domain generating algorithm, this means there are keys and seeds used to generate the actual domains that's going to be used to exfiltrate um, or to communicate with a command and control server. However, if I had two machines that were compromised with the same configure worm, one machine may generate 50,000 or 500,000 500, uh, unique domains it may try and communicate with. The next machine, two machines, the next one may, may generate its own list of multiple hundred of thousands of domains that it might try and reach and communicate with, even though in real life, like the real domain for maybe, let's say 50 or 60 active domains, but with an algorithm, it made it very difficult in order to know where this malware is going to reach out to, as well as it, it made it hard to find, like, might it reach out in the future? How do we detect? How do we alert, et cetera? That's a unique thing to learn is, since we understood DGAs, now most of the malware that I interacted with um, that usually establishes uh, command and control almost always had some sort of um, domain generation sequence inside, which just made it harder to um, detect and defeat. Stuxnet, I think most of us in cybersecurity, many of us have heard about Stuxnet. Now, what we learned from Stuxnet, really, really well-written, very well-written malware worm that made its way across the internet until it got on specific programmable logic controllers inside Iran. But inside this, our first major use in where we see kinetic effects from cyber. And so I, I don't have time to talk about everything that it did. You know, there are many good um, quick YouTube videos that we can see um, the effect of Stuxnet on its specific targets, very well written, as I mentioned multiple times. But um, we, we, we really saw how like I can write software and then cause like serious kinetic effects from more like one, one specific worm or software that we can write. Moving over into um, 2013. So 2013, like, this crypto locker, like, I don't have time to talk about that one, but APTs. So APT1 was released by Mandiant, the, the very, very well-known um, security company. So with, in 2013, this was the first release, like the first known release from a civilian organization that actually had multiple years of investigating well-known um, threat actors across the world. And so in APT1, they um, identified you know, the specific country as having long-term impacts and hands and reaching and kind of like monitoring exfiltration of information from many companies around the world. And I mentioned it lasted for multiple years and also exploited the X.509 um, certificates. So where we thought we were having secure communication, the specific country that's um, listed in APT1, um, they were able to read everything that an, an organization was using for years. And so this was a good, um, like a, it was it was an eye opener of, wow, there are there are nation states that are weaponized to like attack, exfiltrate, infiltrate information from specific organizations um, and companies. Yeah. Now looking at um, shell shock, and um, so if if we look at uh, 2014, and um, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I need to move faster. So if we look at 2014, so uh, yeah, there was there were good attacks with Heartbleed as well. Um, previously mentioned with APT1, we're talking about like certificates and exfiltrating, um, like secure communication and being able to read that. Um, other attacks have stemmed from that. Um, so I, I won't um, talk about the Heartbleed, which was a really good attack, but at least Shellshock. So in Shellshock, when we learned this in 2014, this uh, Shellshock attack, it was a Vulnerability in Linux machines have actually um, extended since like 1989. So very many years of, of um, kind of having a, a time sequence attack on what we thought was a secured operating system, you know, secured machines. This was really nice. Many 
malware authors have adopted a type of um, how can I like exfiltrate like time sequencing in order to um, escalate my privileges onto um, specific machines. But we also had like um, large known, like re really well known of the insider threat. I think that word um, was commer not commercialized, but in the civilian sector, we really started to look at like, wow, what, what really does the insider threat look like? when Snowden went out and released lots of information, you know, from uh, a specific agency um, had really, really large impacts, but it also um, kind of raised awareness of what, you know, large government uh, might be able to do um, against individuals. But um, at least the insider threat was an important concept that we really started looking at since 2014. Um, if I move forward, so ransomware as a service, we started to see that in 2016. As I mentioned, ransomware was not new but actually being able to lease your ransomware and have it uh, work in effect for a specific time against specific targets, and then to lease that and give that um, access to many other individuals. We started to see that from 2016. And now most of ransomware that we see usually implements some sort of ransomware um, as a service that we first started to see systems. Um, okay, let me talk about real quick in 2020 and then um, We'll finish in 2021. So in 2020, we saw the SolarWinds. So SolarWinds, large organization that many other corporations kind of lease services and protections from, but SolarWinds was a really well, like really powerful supply chain interdiction type of attack. And what you have trusted organizations, let's even go with a government that leased many of the tools from SolarWinds. Now the entities did not attack the government. They did not exploit like many um, protected government networks, but instead they exploited like um, verified or authorized software that's now used inside organizations. So here we are, we purchased services from SolarWinds. SolarWinds had many products, including the Orion um, software, the o Orion software suite that was now compromised from the code where it was coded now, individuals at the SolarWinds company did not know that their code was compromised. They promulgated their, they compromised malicious code other to other, over to other protected organizations. And now many people were exploited and are still dealing with how to remediate the effects from SolarWinds. So at least we understand, like, you know, instead of me as the attacker trying to exploit the organization directly, I can utilize an indirect attack to go after the software that's used or the, your, your supply chain to allow that attack to come into the um, protected organization, which is re re really not. Um, so the, the Colonial Pipeline, I think I'll, I'll stop with this one, um, the Colonial Pipeline in 2021. So this was also really well-known ransomware, but many significant things happened because of, rant, uh, of this uh, Colonial um, Pipeline. In the US, many people you know, across the Northeast um, northeast side of the nation, you know, we're uh, running because we thought like there'll be a fuel um, shortage because the company did not really know how much fuel was in there and within their pipeline, et cetera. So it caused damage, um, like many millions of dollars were lost as a result. But the U.S. and uh, the United States actually changed like the way it cared about ransomware because of this. And I'll, I'll talk about that in one of our slides to come. Now, here's just the thought process. When we talk of, you know, I always say ransomware and malware is continuing to increase in sophistication and prevalence. Um, in the back of our minds, we always think that, hey, our software is, is, our software security is always getting better. I thought we are getting better. And that is true. Software security is um, getting better at protecting against ransomware and malware. You'll, you'll see Apple saying, hey, we're really good. We detect, you know, Almost all of our zero days, our phones are secure. Android will try and do the same thing. You know, your different operating systems will come and say, we're very secure, we're very secure. We have the AI to protect us. But, you know, I just want us to beware that it seems we are crossing paths between what our vendors, our security vendors will tell us and actually what's happening in real life. So here's a report by Rand. It was called Zero Days, Thousands of Nights. Um, this, this report is, is quite a few years old now, um, but at the time it actually like identified that many zero days are actually the, like the average lifespan of zero day can last multiple years. And so what they looked at, it was like half of all the zero days that they looked at, um, it had an average life expectancy of 6.9, almost seven years in existence. 
Now your antivirus companies, you know, many of them will say, hey, we detect so many zero days so quickly. As I mentioned, we have insert security platform and tool here, you know, just to make us feel more secure. But in reality, many of these zero days are lasting for a very, very long time. The software is getting better, but the malware authors are also advancing and are also increasing. So we should never truly have this full sense of my computer, my systems are secure when many malware will always persist. And then unfortunately, whenever we finally detect, oh, here's a new malware. Unfortunately, that malware has been in your network, in your organization, you know, for many, many, many years. And um, one other thing to talk about, when we um, started with APT1 2013, 2014, it was mainly 2013 by Mandian. Since then, there have been lots of advanced persistent threats identifying specific nation states and like specific hacker uh, actors or hacker groups. And then they usually talk of how do they exploit systems? What are they generally looking for? What's their modus operandi? And what are some specific signatures from these organizations? This number has always been increasing since 2013. Um, since 2021, 2022, we're at over 40 um, APTs. Right now, I'm sure it's, it's a few more than that. But again, you will always have actors that are out there exploiting your machines. And so us, as we consider software security and our network security, enterprise security, you know, we should always think in the back of our minds, how might our systems become exploited? And then what should we do? How do we better detect this and defend our systems moving forward? Here are some things that I added in in order to kind of help us view the awareness of malware. So, and like threat actors, you know, the evolution of, of malicious software, et cetera. So every year, many reputable organizations release their annual, it's usually an annual report, annual cyber report, annual malware report, in which they talk of from the last year until now, so many hundreds of thousands, almost millions new malware samples have been detected. And these have been successful. And then you generally see specific trends in malware. Since we looked at these reports from like 10, 15 years ago, it was generally what malware is trying to do on your specific system, how to compromise and own your computer, how to shut it down, kind of doing some sort of DOS activity until your general trends that you almost always see now since like the last you know seven, eight years is how is ransomware changing? How is it holding your resources ransom and hostage until you pay a fee? And then we see every year organizations are actually paying like upwards of billions of dollars in ransoms in order to try and gain access to their computer systems. I forgot the college, but um, it, was, it was recent. There was a college in um, California. It was, it was less than three years ago that the ransomware, like the cost to remediate the ransomware from, their, from all of their computer systems was so great that the actual college had to shut down. I'm not lying. Um, I wish I can I can recall that. I, I wish I put it into the slide. Um, I didn't remember the university, but I'll try and find that after this after this talk. So um, we all we all can see it. But yep. Um, you know, it's it's a significant cost that we do have to understand and how do we better protect our system. So overall, the main point I'd like us to leave here is we should really adjust our view of the world. And that view of the world increase includes the knowledge that. Every device is an attack surface for a malicious individual in order to exploit our computer systems and exploit our enterprises. So IoT, inter Internet of Things, you know, a new cyber attack platform. I spoke about Stuxnet earlier, but when was the last time that really you thought, you know, this advanced technology that I have in my car, in my vehicle, this technology may be spying on me, or this technology may be trying to kill me because of malware that either existed at the time from the manufacturers or malware was able to be injected into that car, into this technology that I'm using because lots of these vehicles have a, a connection stream either to the real internet or to their, um, their base um, the base manufacturers in order for diagnostics or to learn, or whenever you receive updates onto your computer systems, it's important um, you know, to know that malware can be injected that can now harm and kill you. To the top right, um, I also have like kind of your your smart devices, like your smart um, light bulbs, you know, oh, I love to have things. I can just monitor and control these items from my phone. But really lots of these devices have almost zero security embedded within them. 
there are times when I was asked to exploit computer machines, like to do penetration testing or to understand like what could be the vulnerabilities in the organization. Besides going after the user to exploit, I would also look at these devices that could be present because many times these have good exploitation attack points for me to come from your light bulb to exploit your computer machines. It's just something to be cognizant and to, and to know about. Another thing, I think there was a, um, thank you for the note, um, John. Um, there was another uh, uh, lawsuit from Ring, I believe Ring slash Amazon, which I, I believe Amazon took over Ring, but it was a few years ago in which the Ring networks were compromised by malware or compromised with malware by malicious actors. And now the actors were able to use these devices like inside the homes in order to spy on the people that are um, present within the house. They're also able to like talk, you know, and, and have like malicious voices. I am watching you. Um, some people were able to do this from these devices. There's like a lawsuit um, that I believe Ring lost because they knew some of their devices were insecure, unsecure. Their devices were not secure. And then individuals were able to compromise them. Um, I, I have like your stoplights and other like internet of things uh, that we rely on. These could be compromised with malware like the Mariah um, botnet um, that was one of our first uses of Internet of Thing uh, malware. So as I keep saying, you know, the the automation that we bring into our house, you know, can be a a very low hanging fruit for malicious actors to attack your network. So just be cognizant and you know, think if this system is going to attack my network, how can I better secure my system? Usually, isolation and segregation or segmentation is is one of the best approaches for those. Now, the airplane, you know, the airplane attack of the 737 Maxes, when they were, when the first one crashed, and then when the second one crashed, the actual first thing that I was thinking about, um, you know, I usually don't go to, well, was the pilot malicious? You know, did the pilot have a, a mistake? And that led to the crashing of the systems. But these crashes occurred because of software. Now, could a malicious actor have embedded malicious code to take over the airplane and to cause it to crash. Now, these are true things that could actually happen. Um, there is another, I, I didn't include it here, um, but there was another individual that was actually kicked off, I believe it was a United aircraft. You can um, you can Google it and find, like it was a, it was a hacker, well-known hacker. He was, according to the report and some of the news, he was able to exploit the entertainment system inside the airplane and was able to view some of the, the, the actions from the actual instruments in the cockpit. So according to him, he, was, he said he was able to do some things in the airplane um, and then like either tweeted about it or let the world know that, hey, I've actually exploited the entertainment system in the airplane and now he was kicked off of a flight, I think banned from United or something like that. But um, you know, these are true vulnerabilities that could exist if we don't think about these from inception and then figure out how do we better secure the system. Um, there's also like uh, medical devices that are placed inside individuals to help our lives, like pacemakers or insulin pumps that are controlled and they can be modified um, uh, using a computer, you know, as cyber linkage to, you know, like see how is the individual, how is the, the patient responding to treatment, how do we adjust how it's working. But these two represent a significant um, attack surface that a malicious actor could use to harm individuals. It's just another way of cyber warfare that could exist. And then the last one, um, Char uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Valsek, I want to say it was around 2013, 2014, but they became like very famous on being able to like figure out how to inject code into vehicles to cause the vehicles to do malicious things. There are also a few um, thanks, thanks, Mike. Um, there are also a few YouTube videos that show like some of the impacts that they were able to have. But in one, they attacked like the whole Jeep, um, like Jeep GM network. Another one, I also think they were they were driving like a Prius. So they rip up the dashboard, they understand what are the embedded devices to inject code. And then you can see while one individual is driving, the other person was able to inject code to like jerk on their um, seatbelt. They were also able to like cause the steering wheel to, um, to shift or to, you know, to change. So imagine if a malicious actor has malware just embedded and waiting inside many, many vehicles, they now want to do harm while you're going at 60, 70 miles per hour on the freeway. Now they jerk the wheel. You know, this can cause significant harm and damage to individuals that we really need to be cognizant of these attack services and then starts to ask the question, 
how do we persist and how do we keep you know an adversary from exploiting our computers so if we look at um approaching security there are two main levels that we'll we'll discuss one approaching national security uh, approaching security at the national level and then approaching security at the individual level at the national level we have these things uh, we have various task forces that are established you know in the department of defense with um uh, department of homeland security usually department of homeland security fbi cia nsa um, as well as uh, there was no, yeah, the United States, U.S. Cybercom. Um, but these individuals got together, especially, uh, I think this one was led by the FBI, as well as from the president. Um, um, but after the 2021 colonial pipeline, um, this kind of brought like our nation, the U.S., to really say that, okay, ransomware is a serious attack. It's a, it's a serious cyber warfare that we really have to um, deal with. So how do we respond? And then the ransomware task force was created as a result of this, in which they said that ransomware attacks present an urgent national security risk around the world. And so after having this task force and you know multiple task forces since then, but they came, when this one was established, they came up with four main recommendations. One, establishing an international coalition to combat ransomware. Um, how do we disrupt ransomware with businesses and disrupt a profit model such that we can try and just elevate um, the, the way that attackers are able to receive funds from that, so hopefully we can make it less profitable for malicious entities. Um, how do we establish ways to help organizations to prepare and to respond with ransomware attacks? And then, as I mentioned, um, the response. And so they also said we need an international cooperation and adoption process of standards and expectations that are actually um, still in use to this day. And so um, from the nation, like we try and see how do we share information in order to reduce ransomware from uh, attacking our systems, especially um, from now and through the future. So this is just a model um, just from one year that they said from uh, 2020 to 2021, that over 2,400 um, US-based governments, healthcare facilities, et cetera, they were victim of ransomware attack. On average, the victims um, paid in, in 2020 um, over $350 million due to ransomware. And so there is a lot of, there is advanced skill sets used to create ransomware. This is true, but in the scheme of things, it doesn't cost millions of dollars to create. So imagine it's extremely profitable for malicious actors to create ransomware and now to receive fees, which is why I say our world, we are never getting away with ransomware because it's just so profitable for us. Now, or profitable for the malicious actors. I wear both hats, so I'm just saying it's profitable for the malicious actors. Um, now, how do we approach security on the individual level? Well, I want to introduce this concept called the Byzantine General's Problem and then Byzantine Fault. So in computer science, it's a well-known, um, like it's a well-known concept in which we deal with distributed systems or distributed computing. So the Byzantine General's Problem, it deals with you have multiple entities out there. And so with multiple systems that are communicating, we want to be able to identify when one of the systems like fails either intentionally or maliciously. Now it's acting in ways that it was not supposed to act. So how do we detect and then how do we respond to this? As I mentioned, like this is, it's well known, but I'm, I'm running out of time. I still have many things to talk about. So I, I can't talk too much on this slide, but I'm going to explain it a bit more in the following slide. So Byzantine fault tolerance, uh, as I mentioned. So everyone, um, when you talk of the Chinese Byzantine, um, like just the Byzantine problem, um, since you have many actors that all must work in unison. So when they work in unison, it's called a consensus. In case any one of them's, uh, any one of our systems fail, you know, it's called a fault. So how do we respond and keep our systems as resilient as possible? Well, the easiest way or one way to start with whatever system that we own, you actually have that system that we wish to protect and you draw a circle around it. Then we look at the components and the dependencies required in order for that system or that software or this framework to work. What are the dependencies and the components that need to run? Then we ask ourselves which failures in any one of these components can lead to the compromise of the overall integrity of this system or this software or this machine that we need to protect. Then we go about how do we protect and respond against these systems. 
So one way, as I mentioned, if we look at the computer system, I kind of drew our stack in which we have applications below your applications that run and user programs that run. We have libraries and routines and then system calls that run in order to help those applications like operate as needed by the user. Then below those routines and system calls, we have the operating system that's calling and interacting with that. Below your operating system, you have the kernel level and firmware and your hardware abstraction la layer in order to help like kind of interact with our hardware and different components that are attached to the system. So once we have the overall computer machine that we want to protect, as always, we ask ourselves which failures can compromise the integrity of the system. So I spoke about we, when we look at the computer system at the beginning of malware and like the evolution of malware, we usually started at the user program level because that's what we knew how to compromise and export. Until later on, we learned like even from our rootkits, et cetera, oh, I can compromise library routines and system calls that gives us better privilege exploitation and execution on the system until we can exploit the operating system itself. And so if we can exploit the operating system, then that means any software that's run on the operating system, like if I have AV that's only run at user level with user privileges, and yet I have hardware that's embedded in the operating system or hardware that comes already installed on the firmware or the components that are used to operate the system, this software cannot stop my malware that's running down here because I'm already at a more privileged level on you know, making the overall system run. And the same thing with the hardware. And so us, you know, as security professionals, you know, we should ask ourselves and see, like, how do we secure our critical data and our processes, even when every layer of the computer system is compromised already? And then the last thing, as I, I mentioned, you know, in previous attacks that I've been um, commissioned to help and find exploits and vulnerabilities into networks, you know, anytime, and you know, this will always be my go-to, even moving forward. Anytime I'm asked, you know, what vulnerabilities persist on an or on an organization, or if I'm in an organization, I say, hey, how can we be attacked? You know, instead of looking at, oh, hey, let's look at your software, let's look at your computers, what do you buy, who do you communicate with? The first thing I go to is very good, who are your users here? Because I can understand how to exploit the users, then I can allow the users to carry me into your network and then exploit everything else from there. And so I have a quote here at the bottom, you know, amateurs attack systems, but experts attack the people. Because usually the user, like that, that's the softest, that's the, the easiest way to allow them to bring me onto a network and then I can pivot from that. And uh, at the bottom, I just have like well-known um, attackers. And again, you can find these on YouTube, like Relic, uh, Dave Kennedy, or um, oh my freak, uh, uh, Jason Eastry um, on like really, really good social engineers. And then they actually have live attacks on, on where they're able to exploit computer systems and exploit people, um, and then that allow them to exploit, you know, exploit entire enterprises. And so I hopefully the links, like when you get this, the, the links can appear, and then you can actually go to and see how they, the, the video and how they exploited the machines. All right, so the Byzantine failure approach. Overall, we, you know, we have to be able to evaluate our system, evaluate your entire stack, uh, and then see if any one of these failures can occur how does it compromise our systems? And then more importantly, we have to understand like approach security from the system that I'm using is already compromised. Okay, the system is compromised. How do we still assure our critical information and our critical processes? What can we do to st still secure um, like our operation as an organization? Because failure to do this, as I mentioned, you know, this costs billions. It's measured in billions of dollars a year because we did not better secure our systems previously. So overall, recommendations, you know, and, and I think we'll, we'll, we're getting towards the end and then hopefully we'll have time for questions, but uh, at least the recommendations for a more secure tomorrow, I wanna leave us with these four main tenets. And that's dealing with zero trust. How do we approach our systems from a mission assurance process or an information assurance standpoint? How do we approach security from the educational standpoint? And then how do we approach security from a cultural standpoint? Your work or your organization culture, how do we change that in order to better secure our computer systems? So the first, incorporate zero trust. So when we talk about zero trust, we kind of assume that you know one system, if we have two entities that need to communicate on a network, the second entity should not trust the first one until you validate the information they should have access to 
um, then you validate that truly they should have access to this data. And then you kind of monitor or you have guards on how do they access and then what are they doing to hopefully identify anomalies to the system. So we start by inventorying all of our assets, know what's on the network, catalog your approved and unauthorized software and devices and access mechanisms. This goes towards the exposure that exists inside the organization. And then we look towards endpoint protection. We should never get away from those. I bash on our AV vendors because, you know, I write exploits. And so um, usually like the exploits that I would, I would write, it takes time, but it's usually never detected by the AV vendor at first. Yeah, there was even a software, like uh, I actually released this one. Um, there was even like a botnet um, that I created, well, a remote administration tool. Um, but anyway, a botnet I, I released in like 2014, was it? 2014, I think. And so initially when I wrote it, of course, I actually uploaded it to AV vendors. I uploaded it to VirusTotal to see, okay, how are you going to detect me? Because this truly was malicious, zero detections. Now, fast forward years later, I, I released it in 2014. So it was written in 2012, 2013. Um, years later, like 2016, I remember I got a notification on one of my computer systems that I was compromised with the malware. It's like, I have a malware on my, on my machine like that I don't know about. Okay, interesting. How did someone compromise my system? You know, I was I was intrigued. I was like, man, you, how did you get how did you get inside? So I looked at the AV um, vendor, like reputable AV vendor. I looked at the report, and then it referenced the first version of the malware that I released two over two years ago at that standpoint. Not even newer versions. It actually detected the first version that was sitting on my machine. So again, there, there it's. It's not non-trivial in order for me to know how to like evade detection from our AV vendors, et cetera. So we still need these, but that alone is not enough. So here we also look at access control. Now always change your default credentials. You know, you control and validate now your ingress and egress points. How does information get into my network? How does it leave my network? And then very important on organizations, how do you detect your lateral movement? And so that means once I'm inside an organization, how do I see how computer machines are talking to other computer machines? Because this is generally like our, our best way, you know, to exploit other computers once we're inside an organization. It's like your hard outer shell, but inside lateral movement has been difficult to detect, but we need to be cognizant of those. Okay, in the interest of time, I put other things, you know, here to consider, but analytics and then monitoring. So if your organization does not have the means or your future organization doesn't have the resources to invest in like really monitoring and protecting your systems and your network, we can invest into like cloud security operation centers in order to kind of outsource, you know, in a secured mechanism, you know, outsource like monitoring of your systems to experts, usually at a cheaper cost, hopefully. Um, but if you cannot afford that in your organization, at least there are others who can. And so this is something you know, to consider in order to increase the security of your enterprise. Then the next one, redesign our entire security posture to one of mission assurance. And so I say, we should already approach security saying, my machine is already compromised, all right? How do I protect our organization still? How do we protect you know, what is our IP, our intellectual property? You know, how do we detect these things? And then generally, if we can ask ourselves, if ransomware, whatever attack, data, data theft, loss, contamination, non-availability, if these attacks hit our network and our systems, how do our, like how, do, how does our organization, how do our systems prevent the attack? How does it detect the attack? How does it respond to the attack? recover and then how do we persist in order to keep our our organization running even in spite of the attack that's currently ongoing and some things we can ask ourselves is what is our reaction time is this acceptable is this too slow how do we enhance this we should also always look at our dependencies like solar winds solar winds the organization was trusted we bought software from this organization but what about if software from our dependency is compromised or even our point of sale that impacted like chase bank um as, as i mentioned jp morgan um, home depot etc i think even, anyway um you know if you have like different types of attacks from our dependencies how do we secure our systems moving and then we also look at what about our communication uh, devices, just as our mobile phones. Also, man, I wish I had time to talk about mobile phones, um, but I tell you, that's even one of our second easiest mechanisms to exploit networks. I'm just going to come in from your phone because you're going to download that nice Candy Crush or that nice application or that nice game that's free, you know, but um, I'm going to have malware embedded inside in order to pivot to your other machines once you allow me onto the network. 
So, you know, just consider, you know, this device is attacking me. How do I detect that? How do I respond from that? And then also the malicious insider. You know, can you determine if we did, we should always think of that malicious insider, you know, inside the network. Now, if they do have access to our information, how do we know, like, what is their footprint? What can they touch? And then how do we automate? How do you, how do you automate, like, how to identify the risk and then to mitigate the damage? These are things we should think about. I'm from an enterprise. I think I'm running out of time. Um, but uh, our overall culture. So we do need to enhance our culture. Like, how do we how do we know that it's acceptable for the right people to red team our systems and our processes and our policies, and then embrace like finding your vulnerabilities and then remediate the vulnerabilities? That's okay. Always red team your system. And then user education, how do you enhance this annually and just maintain that awareness? Everybody should be aware, but don't have that boring training that says, you know, attackers can come in this way. You know, make it useful, make it something that the person understands safety and then they work towards enhancing this in the overall organization. And lastly, education. So education is very important. And here from an education and academia, you know, it's good to incorporate like these types of talks. This is perfect. How do you learn from other people who have been dealing with this in the past? How do we research and partner and establish those collaborations with national cyber task forces, you know, institute like, like your, your NISTs of the world, your Department of Homeland Security, US Cybercom, they love collaboration and they actually have like weekly meetings that, you know, organizations can join, you know, for free just to learn how do we enhance our security. So these are things I'll definitely um, recommend, you know, incorporate those lessons learned into academia and even us, because I used to teach, you know, I will be going back into teaching once I'm finished here at Purdue. Um, but how do we implement like safe coding paradigms in our teaching? So whenever I teach a student, here's how you code a project, I should also talk about security so that our software developers are not going out there not aware of vulnerabilities that somebody else could exploit. You know, we need to talk about this. Security should always be built in, you know, from inception and not bolted on um, after things have been released. And then, you know, validate code. Validate code in our code repositories so you can prevent things like our solar winds in your supply chain exploitation. Okay, so that's that's all. I am out of time, um, but if there is any time for questions, I can hang out to answer any of those. Thank you again for your time, Sirius Mike, and, and everybody here at Purdue. Thank you so much. I um, hope it was useful, and I'll turn it over for questions. Thank you so much. That, that was a great talk. Uh, we have one question in the question and answer. Um, Got it. Okay, I'm trying to pull that one up. Yeah, if you can read it for me, sorry, I can't. Yeah. Um, what is the best method to protect a small scale network, size of a home lab? Are frequent updates plus intrusion prevention like filter ban a better choice than antivirus software? Does oh, I, I think uh, that's a multiple multiple part uh, question. Let's uh, let's go through this and then we'll we'll reach to the other half. Perfect, uh, perfect. Yeah. So so that's definitely a, a really good question. So if we look at like your your, your small scale networks, like a home lab or so. Um, as I mentioned, we should always consider that you know that TV that you have that's on the network, that Netflix that you love to that you love to watch, etc. That TV could be attacking you. Um, so, you know, in, in my network, I am a strong proponent of that segmentation. And so in my same network, you know, I have like a, a firewall and, and different appliances that I purchased that I actually segment off like different devices that can communicate on my network. So that means my TVs, my smart devices, you know, whatever we're using, your home security system, all of those, it's on its own network. And that's because like, Unclassified TVs could be, they, they, you know, different devices could come with malware embedded on it. And so I already think that, hey, this thing is attacking me. So how do I just limit like the exposure of my systems? How do I limit the exposure of like what's important to me? You know, my systems that I'm running on, that I'm writing code on, that I'm researching, you know, the system that I check my bank account or all those things. I try and keep them as separate as possible from, you know, the TV or the printer that could be sniffing my network and, and actually learning everything that I'm doing. Um, something else that I, I utilize is definitely virtual machines. Um, and so like you can get virtual machines for free. 
In fact, I think I just saw a report this week, as either this week or last week, very, very um, recent, that I believe Microsoft has released like a free um, virtual machine for Windows 11. And, you know, you can run these on like VirtualBox. VirtualBox is free. It's a good hypervisor that now I can, I can launch like multiple you know, images like operating systems on. And so I would get these and then like me, if I'm gonna check my bank account, my most my most protected things or, you know, add something to my social security number, that's in its own virtual machine. If I'm searching the internet, you know, doing research for academia and et cetera, that's on its own virtual machine. I don't check Facebook anymore, but when I used to check Facebook, you know, it was many years ago, I, I had a virtual machine just for Facebook. Um, because like, there was quite a while ago that like good malware was being propagated even from those networks. And so I would just say like the vigilance of like reducing the exposure of what is most important in your in your home, in your small network, you know, I'm, I'm really a proponent of those. And then you always keep your defense in depth mechanisms. You know, you always keep your computer up to date. Um, you never run as like the root or your, your system administrator on your computer. So yes, it's easy to do that. If I want to install software, I want to just be able to install and move on. But me, whenever I install my computer, my operating system, I create a, a, um, a limited user. And then anytime I log into my machine or whatever I'm doing, I'm operating as my limited user. So in case I do have a compromise, you know, hopefully it's not able to easily have root level access. And then whenever I need to do a privileged operation, you enter your password, you do that, and then you go back to your limited user. You know, So those are type of like just you know, simple ways to be a little more vigilant to reduce exposure um, to your network. Well, thanks so much for the, for the complete answer. The, the second part, I think you already answered, uh, it was does uh, utilizing virtualization, isolated VMs or containers make a big difference? And uh, yes. we have another uh, two more questions. Um, if I want to do national security in the future, where should I start and what skills should I focus on learning? Ah, yeah, so th that's a great question. That's that's a very, very large, um, uh, that, that's a very large question. You know, I won't be able to answer that fully, but this this is one of the things I would, I would suggest. And so if we do want to understand security and, you know, work where, wherever we want to work to be able to help our organization, where do we start? Well, the first thing I would actually say is what what is your niche? You know, like, what are you most interested in? And so with that, um, like if you were like looking at like network traffic or network package and you know, like Wireshark or so, um, then really I'll just focus on like, hey, how do I get better at like um, incident response? How do I get better at looking and monitoring the network? If you Google, there used to be a, a really good operating system. Uh, it was called Security Onion um, by Doug Burks. And then that was, I believe that was either bought by Mandiant or FireEye. I think they're the same company now. Um, but there are some YouTube videos of like Security Onion. And so with that, like using this operating system, you can actually see like, how do I better um, defend, detect, you know, and secure overall computer networks, you know, and uh, across the board. Um, in security overall, um, if we learn, like there are a few books on penetration testing. So that, that could be another like easy way in. Um, uh, Kali Linux, and yeah, you can Google like Kali Linux, how do I exploit and defend using this Kali Linux operating system? Um, it used to be called Backtrack Native. Um, but with this Kali Linux, it's like an operating system with penetration testing tools and defensive tools, but mainly penetration testing tools built in. Now I can Google, how do I use Kali Linux? You know, how do I learn? How do I exploit systems? Another main tool that you'd see on Kali Linux is like Metasploit or, um, yeah, it's like Metasploit and Armitage used to be a lovely tool. Anyway, and we talk about Metasploit, you can see how do I use this tool? And then um, like, how can I launch this tool against my system that I want to protect? And then, you know, how do I, how do I learn? Like, what does an attack actually look like? Um, there are other certifications that you could um, look into. I'm, I'm usually not a person that like really says, you know, go after certifications because, you know, we're in, we're in an academic environment here. So if we if we do our studies, if we look at, um, you know, YouTube and exploitation, we can also learn how to defend. I, I think I mentioned there's a, a, a decent book on, as like penetration testing with Kali Linux or Kali Linux penetration testing. Um, there are, There's a newer version that was just released in 2023, I believe. But if you purchase this book, you can also find it online. Um, but if you look towards these, you know, you, there are many different concepts that are embedded inside. If you learn, just you know, browse. You don't have to learn everything, but if you browse, you see what's interesting. You can now study more in depth in that manner. I think that's a good way to learn 
Um, I think uh, we're running out of time. Maybe one more question, uh, pretty quick in one minute. How does uh, how has your malware work been impacted by recent advances in AI, ML, GitHub Copilot, or ChatGPT, etc.? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, so in, in in essence, with these AI systems like um, ChatGPT or using some sort of um, GPT or or even Google's um, Bard or so. How has my malware been impacted? I'll actually say my work has gotten a lot better and a lot easier on specific coding that I would want to write. And so before, like I actually have to like really really study um, how do I get code to do this in this language, you know, and in, in, in lots of Google, lots of Stack Overflow. Um, but now, kind of, if I go to these and I ask the right question, like with your different types of prompts that I send, I can actually see code that's more useful in order to help me like either exploit, evade detection, kind of like um, some sort of um, cryptographic function, et cetera. So I would actually see that these have helped me and they've also helped the attackers. And, you know, if when we go towards defense, I believe that these will be better to detect like defensive attacks in the future. But I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm against someone saying I have the AI, AI is going to better secure me. Like, I, I don't, I don't think so. Because the same people who have AI to defend, your attackers also have AI to learn what is detectable and then to figure out how do I write better exploits. So it's always a cat and mouse game. I think it, it helps the attackers more. And I think the last thing real quick, I saw a report on um, like the different packages and malware that's been released. In fact, I think Courtney, I, I think um, Courtney's brief or his, his um, presentation last semester, he was talking about like um, the, the use of new packages and maybe the new malware that increased. And then you see like a, a scale here and then like a sharp jump once like our, our chat GPT came online. And that's because authors of malware, they're learning, hey, instead of like having to write and spend so much time figuring out how to exploit, I can just go to this, ask the right question. I can see code that I can use to implement new malware. And so, you know, it's, it's good to defend, but it's much better to me so far to exploit. So it just makes me more efficient overall. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, we have one more question, but uh, I suggest that uh, you reach out to the speaker uh, over email uh, and uh, ask a question if you're interested. Um, so uh, thank you so much for the great talk and uh, great uh, question and answer uh, session. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Solomon. Appreciate Thanks it. Again. Take care.